Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Principal Podcast. Today, our guest is John Rood. John Rood is currently the CMO of Impact Theory, um, but he's more commonly known as a marketing guru with experience at Warner Brothers, ABC, Disney, and so on. Um, John, welcome to the Principal Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Arjun, it's my pleasure. How are you doing today? Great. How about yourself? Doing okay. Crazy day, but it's all good. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, you have been labeled by a bunch of people who know you in the industry as a marketing guru, um, and which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast today to kind of pick your brain on all things marketing um, and kind of get a sense for how your experience has helped shape your view of, of what marketing is. So, you know, if you want to dive into a quick introduction, if I miss anything that you think is important, please feel free. But well, I, I guess I'm a guru because I love the sound of my own voice. And so I get pulled into fun opportunities at my college campuses, my undergrad alma mater at the University of Nebraska, my MBA alma mater at the University of Texas, and a bunch of conventions and stuff. And I, I do love the, the subject. And I just, uh, it's amazing how I backed into mm-hmm. it. You know, I was an undergrad English major, speech communication and my head colleagues or classmates or fraternity brothers, they were in the marketing club. And believe it or not, I'm this old. I didn't know what the word meant. I thought it was a club about supermarkets or something. I This was before marketing became in the zeitgeist with telemarketing or shows like The Apprentice or Shark Tank. We all know what the word means now. And of course, every passing generation since me has been marketed to exponentially more than the previous one. But to imagine not even knowing what the word meant. And I get my undergrad degree. Maybe I'll go to law school. I end up going to business school. And while in business school, I got led to marketing, but really more, I was averse mm-hmm. to finance and accounting. I didn't like all the quant stuff. And marketing was dealing in ideas and uh, the sexier side of business, if you will, with advertising and such. But I'll tell you, I didn't even have but a page or two in one of my marketing textbooks during my MBA at Texas that talked about advertising. The marketing jobs were more kind of straight ahead clerk jobs, be a brand manager, be a pricing and analyst or whatever, and go to work at a Procter and Gamble or a Pizza Hut or some someone that was recruiting at Texas. Your listeners may not know these shows 30 something and Bewitched. These are ones that predated uh, Mad Men in terms of trying to yeah. explain to the audience what an ad guy or an ad gal was. And so I was found it pretty damn romantic, 30-something and bewitched. This guy, Darren, he has his feet on the desk and he gets to think of rhymes for the word floor wax. Or Michael and Elliot on 30-something, they get to wear wacky mm-hmm. ties and they have a Nerf basketball hoop in their office. That sounds pretty cool. So, so the kind of non-traditional, non-corporate aspect of business is what led me to marketing and then further to advertising and then further still to Leo Burnett in Chicago. In 89, I graduated from Texas. I, at the time, was afraid of New York, ironically, because now Chicago is twice as dangerous as New York, but I uh, decided on Chicago as being a third less murderous. And so let me try advertising. And uh, (laughs) so uh, I I armed with my MBA and they liked the fact that that I had done stand-up comedy and a couple other things that made my resume resume jump off the, the, the stack a little bit. I got my dream job. This agency, Burnett, had all the cool clients. McDonald's, Miller Beer, Procter & Gamble, 7-Up, Maytag, Buick, 
Kellogg's. It was amazing. And so I met the best and brightest young marketers. Some came from undergrad, some like me came from business school, and we entered these programs. And were us MBAs were immediately put onto an account. So here I am getting to work on Dewar Scotch and Miller Beer and McDonald's Burgers, and it was an amazing, amazing boot camp of strategy. The Burnett strategy imperative was uh, to convince that because. It's just basically a template saying, who are you going after? What's your brand proposition? And why should they give a shit? And so with all that, to convince that because and all the strategy documentation that we would have to do, it was a wonderful training ground. My clients like Miller and McDonald's, we were pumping out so many ads a year, we would have to write mm-hmm. the strategy on the drive up to Oak Brook or the drive up <clears> to <throat> Milwaukee. And I had colleagues working on craft salad dressing that had six months to write and rewrite the strategy because they had six months in between their boring print ads. So I felt pretty lucky I was on some high profile accounts. I could tell my parents to tune in tonight and watch this ad or whatever. One of the fun ones was um, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird playing a game of horse in the Rosemont Horizon Arena in Chicago. And it was filmed by Joe Pitka who would go on to direct Michael Jordan in Space Jam, a movie that's a bit of a derivative from this original ad. And everyone congratulated me on this Super Bowl ad for Nike. And I said, uh, and I, I, I wasn't the writer or the, or the art director, by the way. I was literally just mm-hmm. the account guy, the, the Pete Campbell that just made sure the client was happy. Um, but they congratulate me on this Nike ad with Jordan and Bird, and I had to correct them. It was a McDonald's ad. <clears throat> so here, all the millions of dollars going into producing and buying space in the Super Bowl and you end up having no attribution. It didn't sell any burgers. It might have even sold tennis shoes accidentally. So it reminded me that the bombast or the loudness or the monologue of a Super Bowl ad was kind of a silly idea, um, even though certainly I enjoyed the notoriety associated with working on a Super Bowl ad. And it ended up parlaying mm-hmm. it into a job at Warner Brothers, who was handling Bugs Bunny, the co-star of Jordan with Space Jam. So I would go out to L.A. on these shoots, man, and I... Back when the the account, uh, you know, travel expense accounts weren't scrutinized, we were staying at the Four Seasons. We were staying at Shutters on the beach and all these cool hotels. And I was like, wow, I got to do this Cali thing, man. I got to get this out of my system, work at a studio for a year or two, look at these cool studio gates, get that out of my system, and then I'll return to Chicago and settle down. So much for returning to Chicago. It was 29 years ago. Mm. (laughs) Did 10 years. So much for returning to Chicago, man. And I love it there. My wife's from Florida, though, so she'll never go to that cold climate. But Chicago has only gotten more fun, um, and LA's gotten a little goofy. But I've we've raised two kids here, and we're pretty happy here. And I got to spend ten years at Warner Brothers, another fifteen years at Disney, and now I have left the British Navy for a pirate ship. I've left the big, boring, staid, corporate, bureaucratic hamster wheel for a crazy, chaotic uncertain, exciting, but very disorganized. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that was one of my questions for you too. That's How right. did you, what, what prompted that decision? What inspired that decision to leave, you know, those established large kind of glamorous organizations? Sure. I left big organizations twice that when it wasn't my necessarily decision. Um, The first time was the Warner Brothers DC Comics. We had successfully reorganized the division, closed the publishing offices in New York and moved them to Burbank. 
seeded all the intellectual property into Warner Brothers. So a dozen TV shows were being made and a dozen movies were in development. So it was kind of a mission accomplished, end of the contract, a nice ending. Do, do I wish they would have begged sure. me to stay at Warner? Perhaps, but I, I, I was on to other things. But then when I left Disney, my second tour in 2020, a day before we sheltered at home for COVID, um, it wasn't necessarily my decision. I would have loved to have stayed longer after my contract had expired and extended. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of a nice problem to have. There aren't that many jobs for someone of my experience set and expectations. So wanted to be the CMO of Hulu, which Disney now owns outright, and they weren't having that. I wanted to be the CMO of um, Disney Plus, and Joe Early mm. dutifully and understandably got it instead of me. So not wanting to stay on small screen, not wanting to stay in cable, not wanting to stay in kids, I realized there wasn't much at Disney, so I did need to move on. And so th COVID aside, I was trying to make it work as a consultant, and um, I'm not particularly fond of that. I like the esprit de corps and the corporate culture associated with being on a team. I didn't like being the lone wolf that was trying to poop out uh, briefs or find uh, businesses via, uh, you know, biz dev. But I certainly appreciate and respect those who folks that do consult. And I certainly appreciate the, the clients I, I did have over the recent years that were, uh, so good to me and would listen to my BS as the quote unquote marketing guru. But so I get led to this company called Impact Theory. I had been listening to Tom and Lisa Bilyeu on their podcasts and YouTube content for years. My wife is also really into those kind of influencer, self-help, inspirational interviews and memes and social accounts and audio and all of it. And so she led me to Tom and Lisa, and after years of listening to them, it turned out they were having a CMO job at their new company. They had taken their wealth, amassed through the Quest Nutrition Bars, founding a billion-dollar company like they did, and then pivoted over towards what they love, which is telling these stories of empowerment. And they've amassed 8 million followers of their YouTube shows and podcasts and have decided to expand this studio of theirs called Impact Theory into other types of empowerment storytelling. There's ITU University for online education. There's manga comics, seemingly far afield from the other stuff, but it's all within the spirit of empowerment. And now they're going full in with Web3. NFTs and other types of ex uh, blockchain experiences to prepare us for the inevitable, which is, again, um, empowerment needs to move over from a passive interview platform over time to something a little more participatory and virtual. And all these trends of Web3, they, there is no getting around them, like decentralization or ownership or participation. And so Tom and Lisa were very convincing, saying, look, we're, our little studio is just trying to tell these stories. And we are not like the other knuckleheads in Web3. We do not do pump and dump. We do not see these as investment stratagem or Ponzi schemes or um, some type of let the other knucklehead buy into it. Um, rather, uh, you got to feel good about this great art that we're producing and be okay with it dropping down to zero in value because statistically that's the likelihood. And do not see this as an inflation hedge and do not see this as an investment strategy, but rather just see it as the new way to participate in commerce. Whereas these NFTs should be seen more like a, 
a, a, a lanyard or a wristband to go to the coolest experiences out there. And so I've bought in fully, but three months now at the job, but I'm helping launch a whole bunch of stuff. Lisa Bilyeu, the co-founder, she's got a new book called Radical Confidence, and it's in stores now. And she's an amazing storyteller with an amazing story. And even though she's an, a million dollar uh, or a billion dollar business builder and a millionaire mm -hmm. rock star, uh, her stories are very relatable to all of us about gaining radical confidence. And then Tom is going full in with Web3. He has Founders Keys, I, uh, Founders Keys NFTs, and he has um, Project Kaizen, which is a new kind of game-like experience to build your avatar and participate by NFTs in a virtual type of empowerment experience. I know that's a mouthful. Kind of think of it like um, Ready Player One, where your avatar can join into an experience with someone else's avatar. And Arjun is on the other side of the country from John, but John and Arjun hook up and, and go to the lecture at the Impact Theory University or go to a game challenge where uh, much in the way the younger generation's already gaming. So it's been a crazy 100 days at the job. Again, moving from British Navy to pirate ship, moving from the torture of a hamster wheel to the torture of pushing a boulder up a hill. Um, I've gone from people that want to be the boss tomorrow to people who aren't sure they need a boss. So it's all sorts of cool challenges. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's really, I'm trying that's really inspiring for you to relevant. say, right? Because you obviously have had an established career with, you know, the British Navy, so to speak, but you're, you're, you seem to be fully immersed in the new thing, right? The web three NFT infrastructure. Um, and you're, you're kind of just, you know, trial by fire, learning how it, learning as you go. Um, if you don't mind, just so just so everybody's following along and including my including myself, um, effectively what you're saying is that Web three enables you to participate in in what's called the creator economy and to build some sort of infrastructure. And NFTs are just the tokens that allow you to actually participate. Is that fair to say? It's very fair to say. Um, again, we are hyper-connected now. And so if old marketing was a monologue, now it's a dialogue. If old marketing was a lighthouse that was staid and steady and lunar and loud, new marketing is like pollen mm -hmm. or gametophytes or some type of dust in the wind that gets shared and it's egalitarian. We all can market. Um, certainly in the Discord community of Impact Theory or across our 8 million followers on social, there are a lot of folks that think they're also the CMO of Impact Theory. So it's not an easy charge opening your kimono, right? Or letting everyone participate in your planning, your product development and your marketing plan development. But they are the stewards. They are the apostles. They are the partners of getting the good word out. And so in that participatory um, we have to, we're going to leverage their, their tokens because they'll, they'll be able to show our, us and each other what they're interested in. And again, a big feedback loop like never before makes marketing again more okay, like Okay, that's, that's an interesting concept. Like so you're saying house. that it's more, it's much more distributed than, it's, than it once was, marketing that is. Yeah, it's decentralized. I don't know about the finance part of it needing to be decentralized. And certainly 
Um, we should not decentralize storytelling to the masses or business building to the masses or art creation to the masses, right? Just because we have YouTube and we have a lot of guitar centers doesn't mm -hmm. make guitar virtuosity any more easily attained. And so in Hollywood, you still need certain people to tell the stories. In business, you still need certain people to build the business brands. Um, but there is a more of an involvement now because of the immediate and virtual and global and, uh, you know, massively uh, online feedback loop. Um, so the, all the good business decision makers, whether you're doing NFTs or you're doing QSR, are trying to discern how much to involve their customer. You know, a Yelp review can bring a brand to its knees or a tweet to a airline CEO can, can bring a stock down. So it's a, a very sensitive time. Sometimes it's toxic. Sometimes it's uh, pathological. But uh, it would be silly to deny mm -hmm. it, much like brands were denying So what, is, what does Web3 mean to you and how does, I guess, what does Web3 mean to you? What does marketing mean to you? And how did the two correlate with each other? How did, how did the two um, coexist, rather? Yeah. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at it. The old Kotler definition of, of marketing, we've seen it like a four-legged table. Create value by satisfying the needs of a particular target audience at a profit. And when you F up as a brand, it's the dissatisfaction of one of those four uh, table legs. And Philip Kotler had a lot of definitions, but that's, to me, the most sound. Create value, satisfy the needs, particular target audience at a profit. Now, uh, my favorite definition of marketing, though, is reducing barriers to a sale. I like that. And That's, the reason it simplifies it a lot. Finding the barrier and getting rid of it. I, I, the reason I love it is because I came up with it. And I spend a lot of my day just helping lubricate or um, accommodate the transaction. And uh, for years, I was in marketing with not a concern for sales as some people get into marketing with not a concern for the quant of any of it. Now, of course, marketing scientists coming out of school with their one-year master's in science, they've coded, they've done data analytics, they know their way around Tableau. They come in and kick ass immediately at a company from the quant science side of things. Um, back to the question, though. So it is uh, reducing barriers to a sale or it's uh, creating value by satisfying the needs of a particular target audience at a profit. Web3 is just saying, look, what used to be read only soon became read and write. And he, when it was just Web2 and it was read and write, we could have never imagined that mobility would allow something like an Uber or any of these brands that you couldn't even dreamed of back when you were just dialing up your AOL. So that's, I'm thinking about the same way. If, if the peace of God passeth all understanding, I think the promise of a new web phase passeth all understanding as well. There's no way I could even imagine what a new blockchain economy means where what was read at web one, read and write at web two, now is read, write, and own, or read, write, and participate. That's going to change everything. Where, again, I can try on a Gucci outfit immediately or trade it with someone else or all these amazing commercial applications and brand marketing applications 
that, uh, you know, woe is they that, that wait and see if this is going to turn out. No, I don't like anyone rushing towards ship in a faddish way. And there have been a lot of activations at a lot of crappy little conventions already that shows how ignorant we all are or how there might be a great reckoning still where a, the vast majority of tokens become or crypto becomes devalued first. It's, it's a seismic global move that's going to have to get um, cleaned up a bit. Um, but to, de- to deny those, or try to hold back those waves would just be foolhardy. So I like a company. Another reason I went from big to small or from British Navy to pirate ship is I have the good fortune of kind of being able to choose company and culture over sure. um, yep. paycheck or parking spot or some of the stuff I used to have, used to worry about. So I'm, I'm picking good people. Lisa and Tom Bilyeu are, are going into Web3 earnestly with their own money. So uh, like uh, unlike other Web3 companies, my check's going to clear. Uh, but moreover, they're doing it ethically, that they want people to uh, be empowered mm-hmm. and be liberated, not um, try to get rich quick. So uh, you're creating value by satisfying the needs of a particular target audience. Now, again, when marketing used to be that blunt instrument of monologue, like a how loud can you be like a lighthouse, then you didn't have to worry about the individual. You could do uh, demo reach. You know, it's all women 18 to 34. That's good enough. Or even not even scrutinizing the spend. Let's just do a blimp. Let's just do a Super Bowl ad, something really blunt. Those days are over. We're in the listening business. I have to create an experience entirely different for Arjun mm-hmm. than for my son. Uh, it is exhausting. But it is, it is an exciting way to look at it, that you are, those needs are now individual need states. We, When we were at our very best at Disney, we would go from the colorful and the entertaining and the fantastic to the transformative and the, the self-developed uh, and the uh, tran- transformational. And certainly when certain categories got to see themselves on screen for the first time. You could imagine the kind of outreach we got back from them saying Disney is more than just entertainment to me. It is a, it's life affirming and it's, and it's transcendent. So um, Tom has said publicly right. he wants impact theory to be the Disney of that new yep. media. And so maybe that's why they poached, sense. poached a Disney guy, but, but um, it's very interesting. And I, I'm not just saying this to spin my new company, but I kind of think it's more of a, good play over time to have be about empowerment and future media. And by, by comparison, Disney for all of their wild success is kind of about yesteryear, you know, values and special entertainment with heart and very, very wise and profitable and undeniably successful brand promise. Yeah, but I would actually, kind I of would agree with that. Just, I mean, even I'm based on the content that much of the content is just recycled content from years ago, right? It's not, it doesn't seem to be catering towards, I mean, I could be wrong because I'm a little bit out of the loop here, but it doesn't seem to be catering towards today's market. Um, yeah, you know, it's dangerous, of course, if you chase the fad or chase the, the new. And so every good brand, including you, you listeners who fancy yourselves a personal brand, every good brand is judged by what it says no to. And so when you're a keeper of a crucial public trust or a brand DNA or a traditional company with years of momentum, you have to decide with dozens Mm -hmm. of decisions every day, which is baby and which is bathwater. 
right? In the case of Disney, they used a litmus test called special entertainment with heart. In the case of Apple in the 90s, they used a litmus test called uh, tools for creative minds, wherein the stuff that works fits in there and the stuff that does not work doesn't fit in there. Jobs returned to Apple. Tools for creative minds was developed with him and Chiat Day. But the developer said, look, we got 80% of the products that don't fit into this uh, litmus. We've got printers and hard drives and mainframes. And he's like, then get rid of them. Only tools for creative minds, and that's going to include a personal music player. And then another set of product developers said, but Sony owns that market. There's no way we can penetrate the personal music player. And so him holding to this brand notion and deciding what to say no to and yes to based on this litmus test of tools for creative minds I want, I want has proven, of course, world-changing. And Disney has to decide every day. What's yesteryear and needs to be dumped? Like, why is the family mm -hmm. always white? Why is the family only is a mommy and daddy and two kids? Why is the, the main street artery of Disneyland mm -hmm. some tired-ass 19th century tribute to a small town in Missouri where, act, where everyone walks right past that to go to the Avengers experience? So these decisions about tomorrow and yesterday, these decisions about what to keep and what to uh, drop, is uh, the challenge. I want to come back to this small point that you just made on, on personal branding and deciding what your brand wants to say no to. But you said something earlier about how um, marketing and advertising today has to be highly individual, right? What you market for John might be different than what you market for me, right? Um, in 2019, I think you gave a speech at the Do More Good conference and you talked about how Yeah, feel free, to, feel free to chime yeah, in. I will, and I I will give credit where it's due. There was Interbrand, uh, Josh Feldmuth, and others who have developed this very keen set of eras that I tried to steal. I mean, uh, add uh, um, some facets to. So <laughs> initially in marketing, it was just identity. You know, Coca Cola needed a special bottle shape or a special dynamic ribbon logo just to stand off the shelf from the root beers and the sarsaparillas. Uh, and so identity was all that was required in a big commodity, fixed distribution, fixed cost business to separate yourself. And so marketing was that it was storytelling, but really just to break through a clutter. The next promise was value, just like, hey, there's all these cars now. Can we find one that's easily produced and interchangeable? Or um, Certainly a value proposition came from a certain retailer in, Ar in Arkansas that said, we're going to do everyday low prices. And so that separated the new marketing, still within fixed distribution, fixed economy, fixed margins, but you go from identity to value. And then the next phase came with the digital explosion in the mm -hmm. 90s, where we could start kind of marketing by experience, right? The Apple store is hardly about the computer. Nike was never about the shoe. It was always about this aspirational ideal of just do it. And so, and certainly Starbucks wasn't about the coffee because you could get it cheaper elsewhere. So what was it about? It was some type of experiential. Finally, now we are in the age of you where uh, tonight I'll be having is the Uber Eats promise or um, we all have our reasons is the Peloton promise or um, visible wireless has, and you can sign up for the family plan, but just because you're single, they're, they're continually making it a special, a special for you, right? You have to get 
We all go to Chipotle, but we have entirely different orders. The only Coca-Cola fountain that's selling right now is that that machine where you can create your own kind of soda experience from right. nearly nearly infinite options. Yep. Um, my insurance is is crafted entirely different than your insurance, even if we have the same carrier. There's a, there used to be five ways to get to the airport. Now there are a thousand. There used to be twenty places to stay in town, and now there's four thousand. It's just all this catering where the customer calls the shots has really turned some companies upside down. And of course, it's it's shown opportunity for new companies to come in where distribution is variable and it requires the nimble and the disruptive and the innovative to deliver value to the individual. So imagine um, the era has changed. It's still Kotler. It's still removing bear or, you know, creating value by satisfying the needs of a particular target audience at a profit. But now you have to do it on the fly instantaneously and entirely different for Arjun than for John. Yeah. And it requires you to think on your feet a little bit more. Um, how about targeted ads? I mean, that's, that seems like it's been around for, I mean, as far as, I, as long as I can remember, right? Like based on your search history, you're going to see a different set of ads than somebody else in, I don't know, Hong Kong, for example, right? Yeah. So targeted ad, it seems like it's, it's been trending in this indiv- individualistic direction for some time now. Sure. It's gotten less blunt, of course. And the good marketers over time have always been better at ears wide open than just bringing the same solution to all. And consultative selling became a strategy. In fact, a lot of schools are adding sales minors because they realize people are learning marketing and all sorts of other business, but they're forgetting sales. And so the transactional aspect of that marketing mix is so very crucial. And again, we're all in business development now because we all wear so many hats that you have to be thinking about sales. To be crass for a moment, the metaphor would be if marketing is um, romance, uh, then sales is intercourse, right? So you can't have one without the other. Right. Um, you'll screw up your chances of one by focusing on the other, <laughs> whatever it is, but they're, they're interrelated. And there are some people that are very good at the transactional sales executives. And there's some folks like me that love all the other stuff, like the flowers and the courting and the flirting and the music and all the trappings of romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we're talking about targeted advertising here. The, Of course, with every passing year, there's more and more marketing to a more and more hypersensitive BS detectors among the generation. They've been so marketed to, they can smell BS a mile away especially when companies try to be woke during BLM or COVID or other crucial societal changes, they just smell BS coming a mile away. So there were occasions with cookies where we could kind of sneak up on you and market it to you. You, you, you think about Burger King and a McDonald's ad seems to pop up in your phone. Obviously, iOS 14.5 and the cookie disablement of over a year ago could be one of the most seismic introductions of marketing since the internet itself. Uh, development that you have to find other ways to skin this cat because permission marketing is going to require covert, excuse me, overt permission of the individual. Um, so Gen Z, who are entirely pragmatic, that I am not complaining about them like a Gen Xer uh, that I am, but I, I actually admire that they're so, they're not nihilistic, but they're like, look, you might have wanted 15 jobs of two, or two jobs of 15 years, but we want 15 jobs of two years. And we've only known take our shoes off at the airport. We've only known global financial crisis. And we've only known 
multiple wars of faceless enemy. And so if we're a little um, suspicious, you're going to have to understand that. But we'll, we'll figure it out. Just give us Wi-Fi. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of intrigued by that generation and not at all uh, afraid of them. And I'm certainly not trying to project my boomer BS onto them. But anyway, so they're very marketed to. They don't dislike marketing. They love marketing. They participate in marketing all the time. They just hate the inauthentic or unrelatable marketing. So the stakes are even higher now to make your ads targeted and not just targeted like it used to be with a with a uh, you know custom printing job on your direct mail piece or even a dear first name email customization. You got to get real specific to again those individual need states. Not demographic, not psychographic, not behavior graphic, but like what's going to be transformative about me? For all of Peloton's soft performance lately, they've obviously kicked major ass knowing that it was never about the bicycle and creating an ecosystem or a media company that services a bunch of distinct need states or transformational goals of their Peloton community. And I didn't say audience, I said community because they are interrelated and they do the the marketing for Peloton. They paint the fence for Tom Sawyer. Right, right. And I think we lost, I mean, this is coming from my, you know, just anecdotal evidence that I've seen. I, it feels like we've kind of um, underestimated the value of word of mouth marketing within a community, right? Because once you've built, once you've built that community and you have, so to speak, I think Tim Ferriss calls it 1,000 true fans. I don't know where he got that from, but I've heard this idea of 1,000 true fans that, you know, if you're able to build that community and people send people feel a sense of togetherness within that idea or concept, they're more likely to share it with other people who might find some value in it, right? So that's that's people doing your marketing for you. Yeah, that's a great point. I I I sometimes think the audience doesn't quite yet know what they want, though. If it were if it were up to them in the short term, I would be constantly in Discord soothing them and explaining to them what I'm working on. But of course, that's illogical because then I couldn't move the ball down the field or get any shit done as a CMO if I'm busy coddling my community. It turns out they may not even be able to articulate the fact they just want good value to the products and services that I provide. And some of them know better than to, to, to you know, FUD me, fear, uncertainty, and doubt on mm-hmm. these, on these uh, chat rooms. But... Uh, Going off and working on making the best product possible is what Tom has really helped us focus on. Yes, we have to be deferential to the community. Yes, we have to partner with them because we should. No, you shouldn't try to earn silence because that's a Web2 idea. I'm not trying to distance myself from that crowd, but it's it's a, a pretty challenging new world to involve. I just don't know that they always know what involvement means to them. Too often, you when you do research, you have to use it as a rule, not a tool. Excuse me, a tool, not a rule. Wherein, gosh, imagine if a focus group tried to name Starbucks. They would never come up with some obscure character from Moby Dick. <laughs> they would probably say Bean, Bean House or some type of coffee meets community hokey-ass name. Something way more generic than Starbucks. Right. Yeah, because because we let the you know the community decide, right? Mm-hmm. You, you a camel is a horse designed by committee, so sometimes you just have to let the brands do their thing versus thinking you have to vote on every brand decision. 
If Nike was named in a focus group, they would not choose the wing goddess of victory or whatever that Nike is, especially since for 10 years we were all calling them Nikes. But rather they would probably say performance tech or some bullshit name that checked off all the boxes of the focus group moderator. So uh, you take the soul out of it when you uh, get a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Sounds like you're not a fan of focus groups. Well, I'll tell you, I, I <laughs> can find nuggets of truth from them, mm-hmm. but often they're like Rashomon. The moderators write up, the person sitting next to me behind the double mirror eating the chicken satay and M&Ms, because that's like standard food at a focus group. Um, <laughs> what and then we walk. Yeah. Then we walk out and they're like, well, she led the whole convo. No, he did. No, I can't believe they they stayed on that. No, they really just mentioned that term. We all saw three different shows. So this the, the moderation of it is crucial. The uh, compiling of the results and getting them to the people who weren't there is so very crucial. A lot of shit gets lost in translation and lost by translators. I did have a wonderful aha moment, though, at a focus group in 2004, we had been given the Fox Family Channel. Disney acquired it from Saban and uh, cleverly named it ABC Family just because that the name cleared. And so we were now saddled with this general entertainment channel that really didn't stand for anything, had some good holiday programming and some good rerun deals, and that's about it. A lot of expenses. I didn't know what you were getting, though. Well, it's true. I can't believe we thought $5 billion was a lot back then, given what acquisition costs are now. But a lot of expensive consultants said to the great Ann Sweeney, hey, man, you got to lose that F word. That is just uncool. <laughs> Millennials are not going to want to talk about family. And worse yet, family makes you think of you know, uh, nagging or prohibitive or conservative or Republican or Christian or something that's not necessarily a wide vessel for attraction of the changing American landscape 20 years from now. She said, well, thank you very much. She had had those same expensive consultants tell her to lose the D word back when Disney Channel was trying to be cool versus Nick and cartoon. She certainly Mm -hmm. got the last laugh on that by making Disney Channel a juggernaut relevant brand for kids two to 14. So hearing that same BS, you got to lose that name, man. She's like, no, thanks. We'll do it. And so we were charged with figuring out these millennials. Born 77 to 96, we researched the hell out of them and realized four kind of universal truths against previous generations. They decision-make by consensus, they multitask, they seek relevance in their media, and they value their families. What? Wait, that fourth point, they value their families more than previous gens? Yeah, but they just aren't thinking of families the way you are. They have their tribe, they have their posse, my friend's got two moms. This is you know, they're different. They don't necessarily have my skin tone. There are all these new ways of looking at family. And so when we tried to explain that proposition, born of that exhaustive research to a focus group in Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, the uh, one of the gals that, around the table said, oh, you guys mean a new kind of family. Well, so I scribbled that down on my chicken satay stained notebook and a tagline was born. We're just trying to reframe what the F word meant. There are times when you love family and certainly the most connected generation. Now you text your mom four times a day from college, whereas when I was in college, you'd call your mom once a week if you were lucky. So the high connectivity and togetherness bred this idea that family works if you tell the right stories. 
that's when we had to take, in the case of ABC Family, borrow the equity of stories that were working in, in the zeitgeist already. Mm-hmm. Gilmore Girls, Smallville, Seventh Heaven, these good WB dramas. And we said, oh, that's what we mean. And then behind them, we could launch our own types of dramas, Secret Life of the American Teenager, Pretty Little Liars, had that female 18 to 34 angle, but always through this lens of family and could fit within the mouse house with, with some respect. So yeah, one line in one focus group helped solidify a strategic direction for what became the number one cable channel with women. Right. That was effect. So that was effectively your new tagline, right? From that one focus group, which is amazing amounts of serendipity that went into that. Was there ever a thought to renaming ABC family and changing the name or just was it oh, just yeah. a new every every new executive would ask that and um and they have since changed it right they call it freeform that's right when, when it got renamed freeform a lot of folks came to me uh i turned down the press stuff because i was still a disney employee but the colleagues that came and asked me i said i don't give a shit i call it pretty pink petticoat i really don't care it, it you're still saddled with the same challenges folks are watching tv on demand or folks are watching TV at three minute intervals on their phone or reruns of home improvement it with any kind of naming isn't going to change its urgency. And certainly a channel saddled with overnight obligation to run the 700 club from Pat Robertson, the name ain't the problem. So I never cared much about names, even though I love doing tagline generation and naming exercises and stuff. It never really mattered to me because, again, Nike and Starbucks wouldn't pass some quote-unquote naming test. Mm. It's the consistent marketing over time assigning value to this ideal so that it now stands for something, right? Nickelodeon, what's that, some 19th century? Yeah, what does that even mean? Ballroom machine. Right. But but we know what Nickelodeon is now because of Splat and Orange and Irreverence. Yeah. And, right. So and SpongeBob, you, of course. Hell yeah. yeah. So you can take any kind of brand name uh, and the consistent marketing over time or a, a clear premise or saying no to stuff and sticking to your knitting. You know, that's going to give any name relevance. I think that's a really, really interesting point that you just made, because I think a lot of times, you know, when people are starting a blog or website or whatever, launching a company, whatever, they get really, really hung up on what's the name and is the name giving off the right impression of what I'm trying to do. Um, but it's, it seems like what you're saying is don't worry so much about the name, just make sure that the content that you're putting out actually gives the name some context. Yeah, I, that's a, exactly right. It's, it's the meaning. It's not the literal. It's the received, perceived experience of that name or whatever. So like people laugh when they ask me, what's your favorite campaign? And the one panelist to my left will say Nike or one panelist to my right will say Kardashian or absolute vodka or whatever is trendy. And then I'll say, get in the zone, auto zone. zone. (laughs) They go, what? (laughs) Are you high? I go, no, no, get, hear me out. It's a call to action. Um, I separate myself from O'Reilly and uh, the and Pep Boys because I say zone twice, you know. Like it's, it's so such a silly exercise, but I think get in the zone, auto zone, checks the boxes a lot more than half the brand taglines and brand names out there. I love it. <laughs> so, in the same vein of of individuality and how things are trending with this new Web three 
um, sort of atmosphere. How can how can people build a personal brand? I guess where maybe we start with what is a personal brand and how how exactly sure. what, what are the what are the most critical elements of a personal brand? Yeah, this is Ogilvy, man. This is uh, the consumer's idea of the product. How do they talk about Arjun behind his back? And you, then you got to go remove the barriers or the, remove the obstacles or remove the perceptions that, that would improve how Arjun's received. And so you better know thyself, right? I will tell you, though, the best executives, yes, they are, they're bombastic and they have personal brands, but moreover, they're just comfortable in their own skin. The plight to make decisions about what they should and shouldn't do is easier for them because they know themselves better and they're more transparent and they're more vulnerable than any other executives. So mm -hmm. you can't, you know, put lipstick on a pig or you can't put too much makeup on a whatever. You have to kind of, the core of it has to be genuine and the core of it has to be self-aware and empathetic, right? Um, you know, working at Disney Channel in 2000 and then working at Disney Channel in 2020, you can imagine those stars don't need Disney Channel like they used to. They show up now to an audition. They got an audition later that afternoon at Netflix. It's going to pay them twice as much. Mm -hmm. They show up at that audition now. They show up with 4 million followers on Instagram or TikTok. And YouTube and, yeah. yeah. I'm a media brand, motherfucker. Or they'll say, I'm this brand or I'm this entertainment company or I, I don't need Disney. And it's true. And you can imagine there's a lot of proud legacy dinosaurs at Disney really getting mad and frustrated that that star doesn't need us. But welcome to the new decentralized economy where everyone is a creator and everyone is a media brand. So that should liberate you listeners. You don't have to try to get into fashion by going to you know, New York. You don't have to get into Hollywood by going to Los Angeles. You can create content now. You can market entertainment right now. You have to declare and then do it and do it with some sense of consistency and tell fun, authentic stories. I love Guy Fieri, and that's not very cool to say, but boy, every I know what I'm going to get, and he's, it's heartwarming, and it's joyous, and it's funny, and it's you know it's it's appetizing. It's not my my palate or my cuisine, but certainly that any food show has been made for 4K television, and so you'd want to hang with the guy, right? So like. Uh, Work backwards from your epitaph. What is, how do they want to talk about Arjun behind his back? And then mm. what can be what can be done day in, day out, short-term, mid-term, long-term to change that perception? What's the feedback loop, the net promoter score, or the assessment of, of comments in your social feeds that show a needle being moved? What's the KPI of a personal brand? It's not just, of course, the quantity of followers. But if there's a quality of feedback or 1,000 true friends, don't try to do it for the volume. Try to do it for the consistent delivery, creating value by satisfying the needs of a particular target audience at a profit. I really don't think you could have chosen a better example than Guy Fieri to illustrate authenticity and being genuine yeah. and, and just not trying to dress things up and just being yourself. I think, I think that's a fantastic example. I would even give props to the Kardashians. I can't believe I'm saying this. They've I don't like that they got famous on their back or whatever was initially done, but uh -huh. here we are now where they're very self-aware and they're very keen and they're very collaborative. And even their show has family values, dare I say, 
which is why as me as a not no longer a Disney employee, I'm a Disney shareholder. I can accept that they're on Hulu because it's not Disney branded, but it still fits within special entertainment with heart. I have to admit that show checks the special entertainment with heart boxes more than most shows do. And so, yeah, I just, I have bad respect for, um, especially brands that have made or personal brands that have made a comeback. Paris Hilton got real to me when she started telling the story of a less than privileged life. And so that vulnerability and authenticity might've taken the tarnish off party girl, but her following growth and her business success of late tells me folks want that authenticity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Would, would you say that the, the kind of the conflict between, you know, the new, the new creator with their own following and their own brand and not having to answer to any large organization and, and, you know, the old dogs of that have dominated the space for so long, would you say that conflict kind of inspired you to leave the industry? Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I was never the great writer, so I wasn't going to be valued like a, you know, somebody at Shonda Rhimes at ABC or whatever. And so I was more of a clerk for helping other people tell wonderful stories. And I have great, great satisfaction and pride in my 15 years at Disney and my 10 years at Warner Brothers. But there's something a little more exciting to be closer to the action and a little less red tape associated with going to market. I liked television compared to theatrical because it, there's a line that says in LA, they talk about movies, but they make television. Well, now, of course, with um, social and, and uh, user-generated content, we talk about television, but we really make social stuff or micro content or short form or YouTube. or So uh, the, all the new media options has me pretty excited for what storytelling or entertainment looks like. I, I cannot do marketing for insurance. Um, I cannot even do it for nonprofit. My wife runs a beautiful nonprofit called formidablejoy.org that drills water wells in Malawi. And it's God's work. And she's raised a million dollars. And over three years, it has affected hundreds of thousands of people in Southeast Africa. But I, I need, I have low self-esteem. I need the talk value of a kick-ass, entertaining, fun product. Like, um, I'll, I hope to get into heaven as a plus one. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say that before. I like that. That's a good tagline. Dude, I only have about four lines, five lines. Cindy's heard them incessantly. And Arjun, you did enough research on me to have heard all this, these cliches before. But I'd like to think some of them are cliches for a reason. They're time tested. They resonate. I keep seeing reasons in the new economy and my new business roles that affirm some of these cliches. So good marketers have to be marketing scientists. They have to have measurable objectives and clear strategies and tactics that pay off those strategies, but they have to hold to that science and understand that some of the in the box thinking got in the box for a good reason. And everything can't be a wild brainstorm if, if the answer is right in front of your nose through some time tested scientific approach that's quote unquote in the box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't say that the cliche, I mean, I think the cliches are actually part of your personal brand, right? Like, yes. Yeah, maybe. And, and dad jokes. Yeah. But, but <laughs> you clearly come off as somebody who doesn't take themselves very seriously, right? You're, you're down to earth and you're not afraid to, to say the things that some people might give pause to be just simply because they're cliche or trite. Is that, that's it's at true. least my impression. 
No, it's true. I thank you for that. I, I like what I've arrived at as an optimist. Um, I, I will tell you guys as a bit of a cautionary tale, very often in management of personnel, one's weaknesses or, you know, controlling challenging part of their performance or development is associated with their, their strength exaggerated. So you have a superpower, but if you do it in excess, it will throw you off and throw all of your colleagues off and becomes your weakness. Now, of course, some folks have legitimate weaknesses and we try to identify that and develop them up or out. But look at the stuff that you're good at and look at the times you've done them in excess and how it's backfired. So yeah. the, some of the business regrets I've had as an executive have just been the excess of my disease to please or the excess of my consensus building or the excess of, of my bridge building where I just want to make sure everyone's having a good time here and I forget to have my own point of view or I want to, I'm just making sure everyone's heard and then I forget to speak up myself and I get railroaded. So anything in excess, if someone's ex, um, has good attention to detail, well, then they'll become meddlesome. If someone's ambitious, well, then they'll become a prick. Now, speaking of pricks, like you and I have identified all sorts of colleagues, and the ideal one to me seems to be this wonderful balance, a three-legged tripod, a stool of three dimensions, head, hands, and heart, which just means you're smart, you're hardworking, and you're nice. You and I have met plenty of folks in business that are just two of the three, right? They're, they're smart and hardworking, but mean or they're smart and mean, but lazy, or whatever the two of the three are. So can you can you be balanced well? That matters to me a lot. Balance of head, hands, and heart. Then balancing in management of a large company, you got to balance managing upward, managing laterally, and managing down. Managing upward to me is like uh, no surprises. Of course, there are surprises all day long, but they better come from you if, they, if it has your fingerprints on them. And you better come, up, come with a solution instead of just a panic. And then laterally is golden rule. There's so many colleagues now and peers. You just have to exercise some empathy. Would you want to be invited to the meeting if you were them? Would you want to have been copied on that email if you were them? And then finally, this idea of togetherness. Armed with Slack and every other platform in the most connected generation, they want to be with their colleagues. And because we're all the same Zoom box, that intern can go over their boss's, 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 boss's head and connect with Iger because he's reachable. So you got to be okay with that. You can't block that. You can't try to put British Navy onto the pirate ship. You kind of have to celebrate the fact that we are, in some respects, just a big work circle. Good idea doesn't care what it came from. We're all in this together. Mm -hmm. It's a real interesting new dynamic. I'm, I'm not saying it complaining like a grumpy old man, but it is very different. I used to be given an assignment, go off for a couple of weeks and work on it, and then come back and report out. Now, if I give out an assignment, they want to talk every other hour about how it's progressing. It doesn't make them weak-minded. It's just the new way they connect, armed yeah. with, uh, they're the most wanted generation, and they have more media and tech options for that connectivity than ever before. Right. There's just so much more opportunity for feedback, for live feedback. And you got to get good at it. Yeah, yeah, you gotta. You can't be afraid of the tough decisions or the tough conversations. If you're coming at it from a loving place, and folks, every decision's either love or fear. So if you're coming from that decision, you know, I want to help this person develop, or I want to, I owe it to my company to get her out of here, or whatever it is. As long as there's love behind it, they're going to appreciate 
your approach. Maybe not in the moment, but eventually, decades later, they might say, oh, that's why you framed it the way you did, or that's why you fired my ass or whatever. So yeah, it's uh, the feedback loop, the connectivity, even in COVID challenged places where we're not in the same physical space, you got to know when to use the chat versus when to use the group text versus when to use the individual phone call versus mm-hmm. when to when to wait till you're in person. You got you cannot drive nails with your screwdriver. If you're going to be a loving and competent manager, you got to know wit have the right tool for the job, the right medium for the right conversation. This is the right place in the right time and you just have to strike that delicate balance. And folks, you're going to learn that delicate balance through effing up. So it's good judgment comes <laughs> from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And for all the good judgment I try to distill in a one-hour podcast with my friend, it's born of a hell of a lot more bad judgment. I'd love to, John, I, I, I know you've got to run soon, but I really love to unpack that point you made about ambition. You're too ambitious. You, you, do, you take your ambition too seriously and you do it in excess. You become a prick. Oh, man. Anything, even, you... in, even in interpersonal relationships. Wow, she's got a great fashion sense. Oh, shit. She's a spendaholic. Or anything in excess. So we all have to make sure we don't redline. We're, we're, we're revving hard on some things we're really good at as a person or really what kind of superpower we have or, or what competency we have at work. But yeah, you have to be careful to not do it in excess or at least go into it loving and analyzing a colleague and celebrate the fact that when they're effing up, it's often because they're overdoing something they're, they're pretty good at. What a way to leave off. Find find balance and don't be afraid to F something up before you find that balance. Amen and amen to that. I really appreciate your time. I'm such a fan of your uh, productions and um, I'm just happy to kind of join a cool set of uh, content colleagues that have been in on this and uh, we got to do it again sometime. Absolutely. John, this was an awesome conversation. I think um, I think it was cool to get you know your perspective on marketing, but also something that's actually a lot more relevant for the times today, right? So I think you bring a really unique perspective to that um, because obviously, you know, there are there are a handful of people that can talk marketing and are marketing gurus, but not all of them have your perspective and, you know, your willingness to uh, do something different. So kudos to you for that. I appreciate you very much. I, you know, the, we went in industry from brain or muscle jobs to brain jobs and then the great uh, economist Manush Shafiq asked, how are we going to keep from being replaced by the robots um, that's going to be heart jobs? And so your storytelling is a heart job. I'd like to think the marketing I do for impact theory, stories of empowerment is a heart job. I think if someone else is recording an accounting podcast right now, then they, they should be panicked as shit that their job is going to be replaced by, <laughs> replaced by robots. But not us marketers. We're good if you lead with your heart. That's exactly what I was alluding to from your uh, Do More Good conference. So I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you said spelled that out for me. Um, real quick before you go, John, where can people find you online? Where can people find your wife's organization? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, John Root at LinkedIn. Uh, don't spam me or try to sell stuff. But if you want a legitimate connection, never use the N word. I mean, networking as a verb. Uh, <laughs> There's the dad joke. Yeah, dad, I'm full of them. I love and it. then uh, Impact Theory, keep an eye on us. Our, our website's garbage, but our products are great. And uh, do please give a look-see to formidablejoy.org. Super proud of uh, 
the ability to, to immediately affect the lives of uh, women in Malawi by delivering clean water solutions. So I, I thank you for that plug. That's awesome. Formidablejoy.org. Please take a look. John Rood, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Arjun, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon, my brother. Talk soon. Cheers.